Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's UPR's Spring Member Drive. And on Access Utah, that means some very special programming, including some best of segments from favorite episodes and some great new conversations. And today we'll be talking about bridging racial and political divides. How do we talk to each other, understand each other, connect with each other when the divides only seem to be deepening? Our guest for the hour is Jason Gilmore, Associate Professor of Global Communication at Utah State University. He's the author, along with Charles Rowling, of the new book, Exceptional Me, How Donald Trump Exploited the Discourse of American Exceptionalism. Jason Gilmore, welcome uh, to the program. Thanks for having me, Tom. So just uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, we had you on with your co-author with this book. So uh, thanks for coming back. Help us with the, uh, with, with the member drive. Yeah, I always love to come back for these. So good news, uh, Jason. We have a dollar-for-dollar match uh, this hour. In fact, up until noon, until this money's all gone, $300 in a, uh, a listener challenge from Cecile Gilmer and Norm Jones. Uh, so they're doubling pledges up to three hundred dollars uh, this morning. So we our thanks to them, and there is an incentive for folks to to get to the phone. Uh, so Jason Gilmore, I guess, tell us uh, right off the bat here before we get into some of the subject matter. Um, do you remember when you discovered public radio? Do I remember when I? Yes, I. Well, I'm not sure if I remember the exact moment, but. Uh... I remember just kind of uh, as an undergraduate driving to school every day in Denver, Colorado, and uh, little by little, by little, I kind of sw- shifted from my, you know, music of the day to to uh, to news radio. And Colorado Public Radio was really uh, my kind of starting point. Um, and once I found it, I I have never left. Um, yeah, it's just a it's such a spectacular service. And uh, coming out here to Utah. Um, as you guys at, at the station know, I was uh, immediately active uh, in supporting the Utah Public Radio. Um, I just think it's an amazing service. Uh, and of course, as you know, Jason, there's a uh, there's a subset. It's that important subset. We have the group of listeners, and we appreciate uh, people listening. But it's a smaller group that actually becomes members, actually donates. Uh, do you remember when you first took that step? Uh, yeah, I, I think I was one of those people that always listened to pledge drives and went, oh, okay, when is this going to be over? And, you know, as a young person, I think that's kind of sometimes what comes to mind. But uh, once I started realizing that the quality of the programming, the fact that the programming was not, um, you know, uh, dependent upon the the advertisers and their whims um, and wants, when I started to realize that the the quality of public radio is is fueled by the people, um, that was the moment that I uh, first donated to Colorado Public Radio, um, and then coming out here, I became a sustaining member here. Well, we appreciate that. Uh, one of your many contributions to to UPR, including content, so appreciate that. Uh, so, a couple of ways you can reach us: eight hundred eight two six one four nine five is the phone number. Eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. If you're looking at the clock and it's in the 9 o'clock hour in the morning, then uh, that's what to do. If, uh, if it's 7 o'clock at night, the repeat broadcast, then don't call. But uh, go to upr.org, upr.org, and you go to upr.org at any time. Look at the thank you gifts and such. And your 
pledge in whatever amount to be doubled up to $300, courtesy of Cecile Gilmer and Norm Jones. So we appreciate uh, appreciate them. So, um, Jason Gilmore, we, we often talk about issues of race uh, on this program with, with you. Um, how did you first get in? I know you, you take students, have taken students on, on civil rights pilgrimages. How did you get interested in this uh, subject? Um, I mean, I could tell you the long story of, you know, growing up listening to uh, the speeches of, of Martin Luther King and knowing that that was something that was important to me. Um, but really, you know, I, at a very young age, I was, I was moved to Guadalajara, Mexico, and uh, that cultural experience kind of shifted the way I understood how we understand people who are different from us. Um, so my focus overall is just on how we effectively communicate across human difference. Um, and race really is, I think, perhaps the most important issue, I'd say, of the day. But this has been an ongoing uh, struggle in our nation and around the world uh, for centuries. Um, so it's something that, you know, we have uh, the opportunity now to inform ourselves better about, to know more about, uh, to become better citizens and find ways to, to become active ourselves, uh, that it just became readily apparent to me that, that this is where the work needs to be done right now. I, I think I caught your phrase, you were moved to Guadalajara. You, you were a kid, were you? Yeah, yeah, my parents moved me down there. I was definitely kicking and screaming. Yeah, um, it was interesting. I, just a short story. My my father, as I was kicking and screaming, he took me down for this test into school, um, and I was like, I don't want to be here, you know. And admittedly, unfortunate phrases came out of my mouth about Mexicans that I had heard on the playground and and things like that. And my dad like stopped me once I had calmed down. And he said, I'm giving you a gift. It's not something that you're necessarily going to understand now, but, but this is a gift. And uh, that's something that's become so incredibly apparent to me over the years. You know, we talk about privilege, and really was the first privilege I ever recognized in myself was my American privilege. Now, that's not to say that, that it's better to be an American, right, that our lifestyle is better than anybody else's. It's simply to say that we have so many more resources and opportunities here uh, that my friends in Mexico didn't have. I mean, currently I look at our community that's vaccinating, uh, you know, rapidly, um, and I still talk to my friends in Mexico who are still fighting tooth and nail to get their, their grandparents or their parents vaccinated. Um, so these, these issues are, are deeply infused in how I understand the world. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that journey from kicking and screaming to it sounds like you at a certain point embraced what your father said. Yeah, that that's kind of the story of, of what I've come to find out are third culture kids, right? People who are supplanted, who are taken from their uh, what they call passport culture and plopped down into a, a culture that's not their own. Uh, sorry, there's traffic. Um, and... Uh, what happens is that because you're no longer being culturally formed by your passport culture, but you're being formed by, by different cultures, you create what they, what they call a, a third culture, and you become what they now call a third culture kid. And that really places you in a, in a position that's in between, that's always in between, right? You're not 
you know, fully this or fully that. Well, I would argue that you're fully both. Um, but it gives you an understanding of how to how to reach across the aisle, how to how to bridge those differences, um, how, how to be willing to have a conversation with people who think differently from you, who see the world differently from you, and still be able to respect them, um, even even though you you disagree fundamentally with them. So yeah, I mean that that experience changed my life. It, it was the gift that keeps on giving that, you know, my dad, my dad talked about. Uh, one more thing on, uh, on this, on your experience. Uh, so uh, how old were you when you came back to the U S? Um, I was 19 years old when I came back yeah. to the United States. And how was that transition? You've, you've adjusted to uh, and come to appreciate, I, I would imagine, you know, the culture there and, and living in, in, in Mexico and then you're back. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating because, you know, throughout my time there, I became incredibly uh, fascinated with Mexico. I tell the story a lot of when I was a kid, I was super patriotic. My dad was a Reagan Republican and, you know, we believed in America and the, the this notion was deeply embedded in how we understood the world. And that was a challenge moving to Mexico. But come to find out after a little bit of time, that same passion um, I invested in Mexico, so I, I came to love that place just the same. And so coming back to the United States was actually, it continues to be a little bit of a difficult thing. Well, difficult, it's, it's um, challenging uh, terrain to, to navigate because um, people look at me. I'm a, I'm a large white uh, male. I, you know, I look like I grew up in Denver, Colorado. And, uh, it's a it's a bit challenging because people don't see that that cultural difference in me, and so when we talk about race, when we talk about difference, um, I'm fascinated by the fact that that is so uh, superficial, right? To for us to come to any conclusion about somebody because of simply what we see in them physically um, is such a fallacy and uh, such a missed opportunity for us to learn more about the, the vast array of, of ways to experience this world. Um, sometimes it's a different skin to navigate the world through and uh, different genders and different, you know, nationalities and different cultures. Um, and I guess at the core of that is just a belief that we are richer um, when we learn from each other. So I want to hear, uh, uh, have us hear a, a short excerpt from, uh, this is an episode of Access Utah from 2015, so back a ways. Um, and I was remembering this as I was talking just in February of this year with uh, Darlene McDonald. We were talking about police reform and uh, measures at the Utah legislature. Uh, with Darlene McDonald, we got into about half the program, turned into a voting rights discussion and uh, some of the history there. Um Darlene McDonald's with the Utah Black Roundtable. She's, she's a member of the uh, Salt Lake City Commission on Racial Equity and Policing. <clears throat> so I remembered this discussion uh, with a, a ProPublica reporter, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones. I had read uh, a, a piece that she had written um, in Political Magazine called A Letter from Black America. And at that point, I can't remember which police incidents said, but, you know, they, they, they keep coming at us. But uh, she was responding to whatever the latest uh, of those were. And she told an incident 
uh, which which illustrates a, a divide in experience. And uh, so in this excerpt with Nicole Hannah-Jones, I, I have her recount this. This is, by the way, in uh, a July 4th outing to Long Island. Uh, these are upper-middle-class African-Americans. She says three of us were journalists. Um, between the four adults, we hold six degrees. We're also all black, uh, she says. So with that set up, let's, uh, let's hear this from Nicole Hannah-Jones. July 4th, an outing to Long Island. Uh, several people involved. Uh, shots ring out. And maybe you could take it from there. What, what happened? Well, we were walking down the beach enjoying the 4th of July, like many people do. Um, and suddenly a young man started shooting um, into a crowd of people. And I was with uh, some friends, my husband, my four-year-old, and, of course, we started running away from the shots. We had a... Um, a high school intern with us who was staying with us from Oregon, actually, for uh, the week. And she was on the phone, and we kind of stopped and asked, who was she calling at that moment? And she said she was calling the police. And it then dawned on all of us that uh, we hadn't even considered calling the police. It didn't enter our mind, and that that was a um, very troubling thing to us. And, and you, you're all, you know, all the adults are making a set of calculations. You're, you're weighing you're, the, the history that you've, you've had and the experiences you've had. Right. And, and I think what, what stood out to us about that moment was we didn't even realize we were, we were making the calculations, that it was just so instantaneous um, with all of our combined experiences with police and the way that we have witnessed policing um, in black communities and of black people that um, the police, calling the police invites a different kind of danger. And by then the danger had passed, the gunman was gone. We didn't see very much of him. We wouldn't have been able to give the police much um, in terms of um, physical description or who it was or anything like that. And so the calculation was, what's more dangerous, the guy who has already left or the police who, if you invite them, may see you as suspects and, and something could go wrong. And so all of us decided, uh, without even consciously realizing we were deciding this, not to call the police and realizing that when you have um, middle-class, law-abiding folks who do not want to call the police, that that is a problem. And uh, tell us what happened to, to Hunter this year, your young, young intern. She's, she's biracial uh, and was, right. was visiting, I think, from Portland. Right. So, so Hunter calls and reports, uh, she calls 911 and reports the shooting. And um, the police actually call her back after she gets off of the phone with 911 and they begin to ask her questions. Um, she tells them what she knew, but again, we, it all happened very fast. Hunter is from Oregon. She knew nothing about where we were. She, didn't, she wasn't able to give them, you know, really much detail at all. And the police began to call her back over and over again. Um, and she began to get really nervous. And by the end of that, um, the last time the police called her back, they asked her if she was really trying to be helpful or was she involved in the shooting. And you just kind of saw her, her change and the fear over her face. And she asked us, were, were the police going to come and get her? So you had someone who was trying to be a helpful um, who was trying to do what good citizens do, and within a few short minutes, and they were obviously talking with a teenager. She's 16 year old, years old. She told them she's 16. She sounds like a kid. Um, she told them she wasn't from there, and she quickly went from being uh, a helpful citizen to being viewed with suspicion. 
The, let me quote you here. You say, for those of you reading this, uh, talking about your article in ProPublica and, and uh, Politico, who may not be black or perhaps Latino, this is my chance to tell you that a substantial portion of your fellow citizens in the United States of America have little expectation of being treated fairly by the law or receiving justice. It's possible this would come as a surprise to you, but to a very real extent, you have grown up in a different country than I have. So there's just a uh, portion from our uh, uh, Access Youth episode from March of 2015, uh, talking with Nicole Hannah-Jones, ProPublica reporter, and she had just published a, uh, a piece in ProPublica and Political Magazine called A Letter from Black America. So Jason Gilmore there, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones in that piece, she's trying to reach out, uh, trying to explain, hey, I've, I have a different experience than, than you, white America. And uh, maybe asking for some understanding. Yeah, it's, she she almost could have uh, titled it a letter to white America, because it's specifically saying that you know we're, we we experience this country in very different ways, and until we start listening to each other's stories and believing each other. Right. The, the, the core piece of that is that we have said this for decades, for centuries, and we have been discounted. We have been told that, oh, that's not really your experience. No, cops are really there to help at all, at all turns. And that had been quite the, a, a different experience for a large po- uh, portion of our population, for Americans um, who were being treated differently. Um, and again, at the core of this is this this idea of listening to people, hearing their stories, and understanding that 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 story that those stories are true, that they're speaking their truth, um, that this is how they uh, the, they experience uh, the world. Um, so really, at the core is is believing each other, right? Allowing ourselves to to understand that that. Um, we do see the world, we do experience the world in different ways. Um, and here in America, race is, is at the core of that. How do we, uh, how do we open up uh, better? Because I think we have trouble sometimes doing that. Um, you know, we're, we're very locked into our own experiences. So, so how do we open up to greater empathy or, or just, a, a, I guess, a recognition that, uh, hey, your experience might be different than mine? Yeah, um, you know, I've I've had I've done a lot of work uh, in this area, and I've learned from a lot of great people who have been doing this work a lot longer than I have. Um, and there's some some things that I've learned um, specifically from the William Winter Institute for Racial Reconciliation. Uh, I believe it's in Jackson, Mississippi now, but it was at the University of Mississippi for a long time. Um, and this is something I teach at, at Utah State University to our incoming cohorts, um, is a number of different values. Um, and the two core values um, that I teach are the values of wonder and grace. And again, these are things that I learned from the William Winter Institute as they engage with communities um, of different races that are sharing the same spaces but not talking to each other. Um, the notion of wonder is, both of these are verbs, the notion of wonder is that um, our, our inclination of, as humans is to assume that we know something. And so we need to challenge ourselves 
that when somebody else is talking and telling their experience, instead of assuming that we know uh, the truth of the matter, we turn to wonder. I wonder. Again, this is this is not our natural uh, inclination. We want to we want to come to an easy example or an easy explanation for things. Um, so we turn to wonder and we ask questions. I wonder. I wonder if this is true. I wonder if I've I've simply not seen that this is somebody else's experience in the world. And turning to wonder really opens us up to to listening to other people's truths and other people's stories. But the other key component to this is uh, the extension of grace. And this this definitely comes out of the the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. Um, And, uh, you know, grace has a a religious connotation, but not necessarily here. It's kind of extending courteous goodwill. And the notion that um, we we assume that, uh, that people are coming from a good place and if given the opportunity, the majority of them, not all of them, um, will actually, uh, you know, if not backed into a corner or accused of anything, they might actually be willing to, uh, to see that truth. And so we extend grace to people and we say, I'm going to give you an opportunity uh, to be a good person to, to do the right thing. And those two values in tandem really allow us to say, um, you know, I may not agree with you, but I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to really just sit back and listen. I'm not going to try and interject what I have to say, what I have to think. I'm going to turn to wonder, and I'm going to wonder what I've been missing about this story, what I've been missing along the way, and that you're filling in those gaps for me. And then extending that grace to each other and allowing uh, allowing people to, to do the right thing. And again, I, this is tough because I think people have have come into contact with people who just bear down and say, I'm not going to believe this. This is not true. Um, but, you know, actually the experience uh, has, has been the opposite, that when you actually do a- approach people with this, this kind of empathy, it does uh, provide them with a space uh, to, to elevate themselves. Um, but it really has to be that. It can't be dictating to them. It can't be backing them into a corner and accusing them of things. Um, you know, you have to give them an opportunity to be their better selves. If you just joined us, we're talking with Jason Gilmore. Uh, he is Associate Professor of Global Communication at Utah State University. And he's uh, here with us uh, talking about a subject matter for today. We're hearing some uh, segments from previous uh, Access Utah episodes and talk about the, this topic of uh, how do we talk and how do we bridge uh, racial and political and other divides. Um, I think as Jason, you uh, talk about, how do you phrase it, how do we communicate across difference? Um, and uh, so we are doing that, but we're also raising money for uh, UPR. It's the UPR member drive. And uh, great news, Cecile Gilmer and uh, Norm Jones have put up $300 in a dollar-for-dollar match. And so that means up until noon or until this $300 is gone, your money is doubled. Doubled uh, this morning. And it is this morning. If you're looking at the clock at 7 o'clock, the repeat of the program, then uh, likely we hopefully have uh, realized this. Um, Here's how you can reach us. 800-826-1495 is the phone number. Uh, if it's the morning time, 800-826-1495 or 
at any point, uh, you can go to our website, upr.org, upr.org, and uh, take care of your pledge, upr.org. So, uh, Jason Gilbert, before we go to break, um, your appeal to fellow listeners, uh, why should uh, they become members of UPR? You know, I, I, I keep saying this, but it's it's because uh, a place like Utah Public Radio is, is willing to have conversations like this. It's willing to delve into these, these conversations and to, to, like I was saying before, to turn to wonder. And I really feel that, that public radio is a space where, where we get to have the important conversations and do so in a really measured, uh, intelligent way. Um, so, uh, you know, giving a little in service of, of that when we complain at every end about our polarized um, uh, extremist media in America, these are the spaces where we're having measured conversation, respectful conversation. Um, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a small, I don't want to say price to pay, it's a small contribution um, uh, for a larger cause. So the way to take care of that, if you're a spring renewal of your membership or a new member of Utah Public Radio, we'd love to have you on board and need you as well. UPR.org. UPR.org is the place to go. Our website, you can see all of our thank you gifts there, including our new UPR art mug for 2021. Add that to your collection for a pledge of $8 a month. UPR.org. UPR.org is the place to go, and we'll be back after this. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Golden West Insurance Services, dedicated to providing Utah families with customizable options on auto, homeowners, RV, and umbrella policies. Available online or inside any USU credit union, credit union or Golden West branch from Logan to St. George. Details at usucu.org. Hi, I'm Natalie Gawkner. I represent the Political Center. Join us for both sides of the aisle from KCPW. A weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices representing the right, the center, and the left. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing residents of this state while proving that Republicans and Democrats can sit in a small room and have a meaningful conversation. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on Utah Public Radio with true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world. Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. That's The Moth Radio Hour, Saturday evening at 6, right here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's the UPR Spring Member Drive, and uh, so we're hearing some best-of segments, segments from previous episodes, having a great new conversation with Jason Gilmore. He is Associate Professor of Global Communication at Utah State University. He's the author, along with Charles Rowling, of the new book, Exceptional Me, How Donald Trump Exploited the Discourse of American Exceptionalism. And that book is out and available. You can check out our conversation on Access Utah about that uh, at our website, upr.org. 
Um, and uh, you can go to upr.org and uh, take care of your membership uh, in whatever amount uh, you determine that, fit that into your budget, and then you become a member of Utah Public Radio or renew your membership if you're a spring renewal. And we're more than halfway through the member drive in terms of the days of the drive, but we're not quite halfway to the, the fundraising goal. So we do need your help and support to get there. And uh, you can do your part right now by taking advantage of a listener challenge. Your donation doubled today up to $300 by Cecile Gilmer and Norm Jones. So upr.org, upr.org is the place to go. So Jason Gilmore, um, talking about, uh, talking across divides, we've been talking about racial uh, divides, I guess, uh, talking, communicating across any difference. I want to talk next a little bit about uh, political uh, difference, which uh, that divide just seems to be deepening and deepening, widening and widening, uh, I, just uh, just about every day, um, exacerbated by the fact that uh, you know, many of us are not consuming the, the same news. We're not living according to the same set of facts. Uh, so let's listen to this, and then we'll talk a little bit more about this. Uh, I had a conversation, this is quite recent, with uh, the writer Anne Lamott. Uh, the latest is Dusk, Night, Dawn on Revival and Courage. And as you'll hear uh, here in this segment, I pose a question, uh, posed kind of in the framework of not having a whole lot of hope about bridging this political divide. As you'll hear, uh, she has a lot more hope than than, than I demonstrated. So let's let's hear this segment, uh, uh, a conversation from March third. Uh, so just uh, just earlier this month with uh, the writer Anne Lamott. You are um, not only just popular on the coasts. You, you describe yourself as uh, you know left wing. In fact, in one interview, you describe yourself as an extremely left wing Christian. Um, and so my question pertains to, you, you do have a lot of fans in what we euphemistically and patronistically call flyover country, uh, red states, probably, uh, you know, some of your fans are, are Trump supporters. Uh, so my question is, how do you, how do we bridge this divide? It, it seems like more and more we just can't even talk to each other. But I think we're starting to. You know, I I have two friends who are very very conservative, uh, and my older brother is is a uh, really born to die fundamentalist, and I'm more of a progressive do gooder um, sort of activist, sort of feed women and children kind of person. But um, I have two very very conservative friends, and um, and they were heartbroken like everyone was by the last year by both COVID and by the. Um, the response and the um, the grief and the just extreme confusion of it all, and so we are able to talk about what we together might do to help alleviate some of the you know the extreme division and hostility that you know this country split down the middle fifty fifty I'll tell you one thing I really recommend is medicine, and this book was written by Arlie Hochschild. And I think it's called Strangers in Their Own Land. I'm almost positive. And it's from a few years ago. And it's during the, I think, early years of Trump. And she's gone, she goes to, um, I think, I'm so sorry, I read it a long time ago, but I think it's um, uh, Louisiana. And wait, where's Baton Rouge again? Uh, yeah, Louisiana, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
<laughs> and uh, and she goes into these really small, extremely fundamentalist and conservative enclaves, and she gets to know the people. You know what a concept. She goes to meal. She has meals with them. She goes to church with them. She listens. And it creates such a bridge of love. She's a famous sociologist at UC Berkeley, you know, just probably the most liberal um, bastion um, uh, that you can think of in America, and the sociology department at UC Berkeley. And they all fell in love because they all just sat and listened to each other. And they shared their experience, strength, and hope, and they cried, and they didn't get into trying to convince each other of their politics. You're never going to, you know? And it doesn't I mean, why would you? And it's just kind of abusive to try to get somebody to believe what you believe. And, and another thing is it doesn't work, unfortunately. You know, people always say when you're... Um, trying to get somebody to get sober, it's like um, getting in the getting in the mud with a pig and wrestling with the pig, and the pig loves it, and you just end up hurt and dirty, you know? You don't convince the pig to, to live a different way, and uh, it's just so crazy for you to do it. It's so crazy for me to push back my sleeves and try to convince people, say, right off the top of my head, that uh, of a $15 an hour minimum wage. I'm not going to abuse people that way. They're reading what I'm reading. They're reading what they're reading. And they get to think what they think. And I get to think what I think. And so I really believe that what Arlie Hochschild did was so profound, which was to show up. I mean, before I turned on Woody Allen years ago, he used to say that 80% of life is just showing up. And I absolutely live by that still. And to show up and to ask people questions and to listen, not try to change them, to eat with them, to cry with them, to to worship with them, to hike with them, you know? I mean, to me, it's the most subversive work you could do. And that is, I believe, what is healing, even as we speak, healing this country right now. So that's Anne Lamott. Um, Jason Gilmore, I don't know. Do you, do you, <laughs> that sounds pretty optimistic. Uh, her view. I, I I think I don't share the optimism. I, I want to. What, what's your view? Um, I'm not sure that I I share the optimism entirely. Um, I, I mean I think she is on to something, which is that we get fixated on on you have to believe my political beliefs for us to have any interaction together, right? And that is that is the key problem in our media environment outside of public radio, although public radio is cast in this light as well, um, is that, you know, we're we can't have conversations with one another. I mean, my task, um, I see myself as probably she does uh, as a cultural bridge. And there are those of us here who have skills and are willing to to bridge those divides to to have those conversations. But I would say that the only way we can be optimistic is if we are taking the task on. We are are deciding uh, individually as groups. We're encouraging ourselves to to get to know each other again um, across those those differences. 
to have those conversations, right? And it's and it can't be. She's very right that it can't be about banging somebody over the head with your political beliefs. That's definitely not. I, I mean, her analogy about the pig, I think, is perfect, right? You just get dirty and mad, or or whatever it was that she said. Um, but but I think the optimism has to be there for us to to task ourselves with finding ways to bridge these divides, right? And again, those of us who who have found ourselves in the middle time and time and again, and there are more of us than, than I think uh, we realize, perhaps it's our task uh, to take those first steps because we can model for others that it's okay. I can have a conversation with somebody I disagree with um, and I'm not going to come out changing my viewpoint, but I might come out understanding where they came from. You know, I've spent the last uh, two years of my life studying Donald Trump and his relationship with his uh, followers, and I mentally separate out Donald Trump from his supporters um, at all. Or I just mentally separate them because they're 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 kind of coming from different spaces. And I tell a lot of my liberal friends that we can't paint a broad brush about Trump supporters. Um, it's just not the case that every last one of them is uh, behind Donald Trump because of his race baiting and, and, and those behaviors. Um, they may have come to support him for other reasons because they see problems in their community that aren't being solved. You know, one of the points that I make... Um, I'm not sure if I make it in the book, but I've, I've said this before, is um, Donald Trump came to power off of this notion of drain the swamp. But what we didn't realize, and I think we still don't realize, is that he didn't mean Democrats. He meant all politicians. And if we look at the debate going on right now about gun control, all of us are throwing up our hands yet again because we're not going to see anything effective done on either side because we've entrenched in, um, right? We've just decided what 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 we uh, believe and what the other side believes, and we're uh, we're incapable of having that conversation. And when we look to Washington, we just throw our hands up, right? And it's not um, it's not unreasonable that people thought that that this outsider um, would be able to go in and shake it up on both sides. Um, I think we're, we're, as a nation, we're all um, frustrated with our politics. We're all frustrated with uh, the way things are going. And I think that's an opportunity to have a conversation about where we can come together, what we might be able to, to agree on. But again, at the end of the day, it takes um, everyone, liberals, uh, Republic, or liberals uh, conservatives, to say that I'm... I'm I'm not opposed to having conversations with people who think differently from me, and I don't think that they're just these horrible people. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Jason Gilmore. He is uh, Associate Professor of Global Communication at Utah State University. Uh, he made uh, reference to, the, to his new book, along with Charles Rowling, Exceptional Me is the title of that book. It's out and, and available. Uh, so, uh, Jason Gilmore, before we go to break again, um, why why should uh, UPR listeners become UPR members? I 
again, I think it's, it's, I would say it's almost a public duty um, to keep a space open that is not influenced the way other media sources are influenced, right? That, that has difficult conversations. That's always looking uh, to tell the American story in different ways through different lenses. Um, you know, when we support something like that, we provide a space again and again, and hopefully we can expand that space right, to, to have more conversations. So our contributions really, really help to, uh, to, I would say, to a certain extent, if we want to see more, if we want to see uh, more resources put into uh, better conversations and bringing in better people to, to lead the conversations on these issues, we have to invest in that space, and that space is public radio. Um, so I encourage everybody, um, just just bite the bullet if you haven't before, um, you know, become a sustaining member, become a part of it, right? Feel like everybody's like, what can I do? Well, this is one thing you can do. Um, it's very easy, and uh, it's at your fingertips. And here's how uh, you go to our website, upr.org, upr.org. And uh, you'll see the click on uh, the, the, the pledge button, and you'll see the pledge form there. Fill out a, some basic information. And when you get to the part about uh, how much you'd like to contribute, we'll be happy with anything that you can fit into your budget. Um, and if, you, if you're at a level that uh, would get you a thank you gift, like our new UPR art mug or whatever it might be, then, uh, then to click on that as well. And uh, there's a space for comments as well. We'd love to hear your comments, uh, things you think we could improve on, things you think we're doing well, uh, programs perhaps you'd like to see added to our lineup, uh, anything. We'd, we do uh, definitely pay attention to those comments. So that's upr.org, upr.org. Or uh, if you're looking at the clock and it's in the 9 o'clock hour in the morning, call 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. And uh, great news, Cecile Gilmer and Norm Jones have put up $300 in a dollar-for-dollar match. So that means all pledges up to $300 will be doubled. You pledge $20, it's $40 to UPR. Uh, It's just that simple, and uh, we do definitely need uh, your help, your membership. We're more than halfway through the member drive. We're not quite halfway to the fundraising goal, so we need to pick uh, things up just a little bit, and your pledge right now will help us to do that. UPR.org, UPR.org, the place to go. We'll take a brief break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering music, dining, nightlife, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. For the past two years here on Utah Public Radio, we've been bringing you a weekly dose of research and exploration. We call it undisciplined because we work really hard to take scientific studies, which are usually written in journals intended for people who share a background in a subject matter, and make them accessible for just about everyone. There are more than 100 episodes available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can catch us every Thursday morning at 1030 here on UPR. Join us here on Utah Public Radio throughout the week for Utah State University Extension's Ask an Expert, featuring timely information from raising your own backyard chickens to keeping our waterways clean and tips promoting mental wellness at work. If you've missed the latest segment for the week, you can find all the Ask an Expert features on our website, upr.org, and on our UPR app.
Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We are talking today with Jason Gilmore, Associate Professor of Global Communication at Utah State University. And we're talking about uh, how do we talk across divides? Uh, how do we communicate across difference, as uh, Jason Gilmore uh, puts it. So Jason Gilmore, I uh, just want to play this a brief segment from a, another fairly recent uh, program. This is a conversation with Sarah Jones. We talked mostly in this hour about transracial adoption. Sarah Jones was adopted from South Korea, brought to Utah. She grew up in in Utah area, I believe it was. She's CEO of Inclusion Pro, so she talks about some of the same things that you talk about, Jason Gilmore, uh, diversity, inclusion. Um, And that's what we got talking about near the end of the, uh, the program from, I think this was November of last year. Uh, So let's hear this from Sarah Jones. One of your uh, presentations, one of the pieces of work that you do at Inclusion Pro is, for example, um, conversations on race, um, having authentic Mm -hmm. conversations. I wonder if if we could have you give us some advice, maybe more on the you know the the broad community level or or the national level yeah we're, we're having trouble with this as you know on a national level what what are some things you can tell us to to to, to maybe help us as, as we have these conversations yeah i am i'm very <laughs> as you can imagine my work's been very very relevant the last six months and um been incredibly busy having you know very deep and insightful conversations with leaders and, you know, the, the biggest advice I would have at this point is that leaders right now are really asking, well, what do I do? And I can't answer that until there's a deeper understanding of the why. And it's spending time understanding the context at a deeper level so that as an organization, when you do decide to do something, you're doing it because you're committed, you, you understand why you're doing something, and you really authentically believe it's the right thing to do, right, instead of a more reactive approach. And happily, I've been seeing that. So I guess maybe just to be very, very clear, um, the organizations I've been working with are willing to have those deeper conversations because oftentimes... So much of so much of us are just simply dealing with we don't know what we don't know. We're in Utah. Utah only has 2.5 percent Black people, right? 15 percent Latino, three and a half percent Asian people. Most leaders do not spend a lot of time with people of color. Right? It, it's just a simple fact. So oftentimes in these conversations, what we're doing is actually actually having um, what I would call connecting conversations to build empathy, right, and to build understanding. Because if I don't know what it's like to be a black person or a a person of color or a leader who happens to be a different ethnicity other than white, then, then, then that's going to hamper my ability to be able to connect and understand where that person's coming from. And usually the divides that we're having are because we can't relate. Right? We, we just don't know where that person's coming up from, and we don't really have a, a productive way to have that conversation. And so I spent a lot of time really helping create 
what I call safe learning environments so that we can have these sensitive conversations in a way where we can deepen learning and understanding. You know, when I'm having these conversations, we sort of get rid of this idea that we're going to solve the problem, right? This is not a problem-solving environment. This is a human-connecting environment that we desperately need to have right now. And that, I think, can be missing from a lot of conversations because we want to be so quick for, for people to understand where we're coming from. Um, but, you know, I would just, you know, recommend slow down that process, right? Because I think what our employees want to see is they want to see consistent, sustainable commitment to whatever it is that you decide to do. Um, but they want it to be real and authentic. You know, and I've had some of the most meaningful and wonderful conversations with executives who have such a deep desire to learn and grow and will just completely acknowledge that that up until now they haven't had a really, you know, solid understanding of, of the why. So there's a conversation from November with Sarah Jones, the CEO of Inclusion Pro. Uh, Pro. Uh, you can check out her interesting TED Talk on, on transracial adoption as well. I just Google up uh, Sarah Jones. So, Jason Gilmore, this kind of reinforces uh, some of the themes of, uh, that we were talking about all, all hour. One thing that struck me from that, uh, that segment was, uh, Sarah Jones says, uh, you, the, you don't have to solve, you know, in one conversation, you don't have to solve the whole, uh, the whole problem, right? You, you just uh, open yourself up and listen. Yeah, I, I would definitely echo the fact that it, it is an incremental process of of learning, right? We have to we have to be open to learning each other's experiences, and that that's going to take time because people have to reconcile that uh, with their own lives. Um, so I, I find myself regularly kind of coaching people through. People come to me and say, well, how do I, how do I, you know, do this? And they'll read something and come back and say, I don't agree with this. And so, you know, I find myself a lot of the time coaching other uh, white people um, through kind of just, okay, okay, but you're still listening, right? You're still, you're still turning to wonder. You're still having this moment of learning um, that your experience is different from somebody else's. And um, that you may have benefited from that and that moving forward, we'd like to find systemic ways to, to change that. Um, but she's right. That doesn't happen in a day. Um, but I, I would say that that is an action, right? So you know, I'm not really differing with her, but I think that is doing something to change it, is to change our kind of understanding of the world. And she's right that... As that accumulated experience and shared stories as a nation start to develop, um, then we start seeing more and more solutions of how to address the issues. Well, we're reaching the end of our time uh, because we have, uh, as always on Wednesdays, Beehive Archive. We're going to go to that uh, next. But, uh, uh, Jason, we, uh, it's your final appeal uh, to fellow listeners. Why, why should they give to UPR? You know, I, I started saying in, this, in the last uh, appeal uh, this notion that if you want to see more uh, diversified content, if you want to see more stories, you want to see different perspectives and points of view, um, you, 
you know, public radio needs help, needs support, right? We are, we, yeah, I'm going to say we, we are supported by the public. And so those resources then get to turn into uh, better programming, um, not that we need better programming, more programming of the same sort. Um, so contributing really does uh, contribute to a larger thing. It's not just sustaining a station. It's uh, sustaining a conversation that we want to see more of, we want to hear more of, and hopefully, increasingly, we want to become a part of. And you can support this at upr.org, upr.org, and your money is doubled up to $300, courtesy of Cecile Gilmore and Norm Jones, upr.org. Jason Gilmore, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, as always, for having me. Appreciate it so much. Here's the Beehive Archive. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Ever wonder how people kept food cold before electricity? This week, learn how ice was harvested, stored, and used throughout Utah before freezers were common household appliances. First, this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. During the 19th century, frozen water was a rare and valuable commodity. Year-round access to ice was an important business operation for railroad companies, and for many Utahns was also a family operation. Ice harvested during winter could be carefully stored for consumption during summer months. The shore of Utah Lake was home to two ice houses that were owned and operated by the railroad. The changing food industry meant that meat and other perishables transported by rail across the country required refrigeration. Throughout the 1880s, workers harvested the thick ice from Utah Lake each winter to preserve the railroad's food cargo year-round. Ice houses were also important for Utah households, and families worked together throughout the winter to harvest slabs of ice for storage. To extract ice from a pond, men used handsaws to cut large blocks from the frozen surface. Pulling the ice on sleds back to the family ice house, they would blanket the blocks in thick layers of sawdust to insulate them from warming temperatures. During especially cold winters, a harvest could supply a family with enough ice to last the entire summer. The reward for this backbreaking work was a fully stocked ice box that could preserve food through summer heat waves, and maybe enough ice to cool down a homemade root beer or to churn a batch of ice cream. Beyond food preservation and relief from Utah's hot summers, local morticians also required access to ice houses. Prior to the rise of embalming services, morticians would pack the corpses in ice to keep them looking fresh for funerals. Harvesting ice was cold, difficult, and time-consuming work. Before household and industrial freezers, it was ice that ensured the safe storage and shipment of perishables and kept Utahns cool during the hot summer months. So think about that the next time you stand in front of your fridge with the door wide open. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.
Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. ¶¶ 